PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. week on PA Books, Ricardo Herrera, author of Feeding Washington's Army. Ricardo Herrera is the author of Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter of 1778. Now, Valley Forge is one of the most famous events of the American Revolution, but the Grand Forge that you write about in your book, uh, you say there people don't really know a lot about it. How, how did that slip through the cracks? You know, oh, th thanks, Phil. The um, Grand Forge kind of gets subsumed by the much larger drama, if you will, of Valley Forge. You know, most of us grew up uh, with a basically a stock tale of American continentals suffering silently and nobly in, in the winter. It's miserable, snow and all that. And so we kind of forget the fact that Valley Forge was actually I suppose you could say the 18th century predecessor of something that we were all, we've all been exposed to over the past 20 years with the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, the forward operating base. So Valley Forge was actually an armed camp with a field army doing the stuff that modern soldiers would today recognize. So they're going out patrolling, they're looking for the enemy, trying to keep uh, tabs on what he's doing, gathering information, sometimes in engaging in combat. And so the myth has really overshadowed what took place. And that includes the Grand Forage, where the army was, in Washington's words, uh, on, the, uh, on the verge of collapse. He was afraid that it was going to have to disperse. And he referred to it as this fatal crisis. And it was just one of many fatal crises of the Continental Army throughout the War for Independence. And so it... Um, gets lost in part also because it's logistics. And when we talk about military history, most often it's about strategy, tactics, battles, those sorts of things. And logistics too often gets put by the wayside. It seems boring, but this is actually the study of the maturation of George Washington as a leader, as a commander, as a strategic thinker, but also his ability to craft and to create an effective command team that's predicated upon trust and capabilities of the individual commanders. How big was his army at Valley Forge? They march in, uh, Washington marches in in December of 1777 with 10 to 12,000 soldiers. And he, in effect, was creating the fourth largest city in British North America. So he's also, I suppose, George Washington, urban planner. What is it? from a logistics point of view, what does it mean to support that size of an army in the field? Oh gosh, it, um, if I remember correctly, it, were the army to have been supplied according to the, the strictures that Congress had laid out, you know, roughly a pound of, of meat per day per soldier, pound of bread and, and so on, it would have taken well over 100 wagons to, to supply the camp there were only eight wagons at, at any one time in camp. And so the, the soldiers are living very much a hand-to-mouth existence. And so they're on short rations for much of this. 
Was there a larger logistical infrastructure in place to support them as they were moving? Yeah, there, there was. Congress had established the, uh, the Commissary General, but also the Quartermaster General. And so the, the Commissary General was responsible for supplying the food for the soldiers. And there was, um, I won't go through all the, well, the details are really uh, fascinating. But Congress sets up a system whereby the Commissary General relies upon purchasing agents. These purchasing agents were not officers, these are civilians. They're primarily men who had been merchants, who had uh, extensive commercial contacts throughout the colonies. And so what they're required to do is to go out and get the food for the soldiers, be it uh, cattle on the hoof, swine, pickled, uh, preserved meats, salt, flour, you name it. They've got to forward their own money which is just an amazing system. It's very 18th century. So they're venturing forth their own funds. They're also relying upon their own networks and their own good names in order to purchase and supply the soldiers in the field. And then they have to wait for Congress to compensate them. Quite often these purchasing agents are writing back to Congress or writing back to the Commissary General. I don't have any money. I need to get money forwarded to me so that I can purchase for the army. And so these men are often in desperate straits. They're literally risking their good names, but also their financial wherewithal in order to sustain the Continental Army as it's trying to support itself, as it's struggling for American political independence. The Quartermaster General, very similar. And so the, the Quartermaster General is responsible for supplying the, the physical needs of the Army. So things like uh, wagons, weapons, tents, clothing, uniforms. And his purchasing agents at first were working under a commission system. So depending on how much you purchase, you can get make some money off of that. That's meant to help spur the uh, aggressiveness, if you will, of the purchasing agents to go out and get the stuff that the Army needs and that'll fall by the wayside, then get reinstituted. That is a, a major piece of it, but also the Quartermaster General functions almost as something akin to a modern-day Chief of Staff, and he's responsible for literally staking out, selecting, determining the quarters of the Army, either in town or in an encampment, and he'll send out parties of, of officers to go out and lay out the camp uh, before the army arrives so that everyone knows where they're going to be. Now you say that Congress intentionally limited the authority of the commissariat to do its job. Uh, why did they do that? Well, Congress is, and, and this wasn't done through ill intention. Congress was very, very concerned about the growth of military power. And so like, mo like most uh, Americans of this age, they remembered uh, Oliver Cromwell, or the, the memory of him anyway, the historical memory of Cromwell ruling through the army. They remembered James II who'd been overthrown in 1688 in the Glorious Revolution, whereby he had tried to use the army to enforce his rule as well as other things. And so there's this great fear of military power depriving the people of their liberties. And in the 18th century, people understood liberty and power in gendered terms. And so liberty was seen as feminine, it was delicate, it was always in danger of being crushed or um, uh, overtaken. Power, particularly military power, seen as masculine, and it's always grasping and seeking to control and to take over. And so what Congress was doing 
was trying to limit the possibility of a military government taking place in uh, the, the American colonies, in the American states. And so by limiting the authority of the purchasing agents, who although they're civilians the, uh, within uh, the commissary general and the uh, quartermaster general's offices, they still represent the army. And so by limiting their ability to go out and purchase and extend their tentacles, if you will, of, of, of power through purchases, Congress hopes to reduce the possibilities of this, this power eating away at precious liberty. Now you, you talk about how in January 1778, both the commissary and the quartermaster were in, on the verge of collapse. Well, what was going on? And this is a key moment where the army needed them to do their job, but why, why was it on the verge of collapse? And, and that's actually a regular occurrence. It's like, you know, what are we doing this week? Well, I think we're, it's time to collapse yet again. Didn't we do that last month? Exactly, but it's time now. And the, 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 the supply departments are forever faltering. And the, one of the problems is initially uh, General Mifflin, who had, who had been the, the, the quartermaster general, he really wants a field command, and he'll get replaced and with uh, William Buchanan. Buchanan's not up to snuff. At the same time, Congress divides the authority of the commissary general. So instead of having one singular uh, person to, to oversee the efforts, the commissary general now becomes the commissary general of purchases and the commissary general of issues. And they have limited authority over their subordinates. And so the, the, the fact that you've got characters who are really learning as they're doing their jobs, in fact, I should add, there was no real depth of experience for the Americans in the Continental Army in terms of how to run a, a proper logistical system, how to actually do the stuff that armies rely upon. And so they're learning their trade as they're going along. And this really creates a number of problems for everybody. You know, the, the soldiers are perpetually in want. One of the great lines that many people are familiar with is a surgeon from a Connecticut regiment, uh, Albigence Waldo, telling uh, his readers in, in his journal that soldiers are crying out, no meat, no meat, no soldier. At what point does George Washington realize that he needs to do something more than just rely on the commissary for food? Well, this is something that, um, that, had, that echoes what had previously been happening. Washington dearly wanted to rely upon the proper system. He's very cognizant and respectful of people's property rights. He, understand, he understood the close connection between property rights and political rights and that the, the autonomy provided by, by having property gave you a voice and a literal stake in society. So he wants to be respectful of that. He also understands that you need to preserve, or you, you need to avoid, really, offending people by seizing their property. Now, he's granted near dictatorial power by the Continental Congress, but also by Pennsylvania's government. He exercises it, though, very gently, as much as he can. But in times of desperation, what he will do, and this is a common practice of the armies in this age, is to send out foraging parties. One of the problems with that, is, though, is that people are losing their property to the army. And it doesn't matter if it's the British Army or if it's the Continental Army. 
when you think of armies, these were incredible engines of consumption, incredible engines of destruction. If you're a farmer and you just put up some fences, guess what happens when the, when the army comes by? Those fences are gone. They've gone to firewood. Your orchards, they're going to get picked clean. Your livestock, odds are you're going to be left with a lot less after an army marches through. And so Washington's very aware of this and he wants to try, he wanted to try and limit the foraging activities as much as possible. However, he was willing to engage in them when necessary. And in February of 1778, with the army on the verge of collapse or dispersal as he sees it, he sends out what really was the largest operation of the Continental Army while at Valley Forge. So before we talk about that, I want sure. to kind of set the stage for where the, where the British are at this time. Uh, so Washington and the Continentals are at Valley Forge. Where's the British Army? The British Army uh, is occu was occupying the erstwhile capital of the United States, Philadelphia. It had uh, landed at Head of Elk, uh, Maryland, marched and fought its way, defeated Washington in several battles, and then occupied the American capital. To what end, though? And what the British were trying to do is to reestablish uh, crown rule, royal rule, within Pennsylvania and throughout. There is an attempt also, half-hearted on the part of General Sir William Howe, to try and support operations to his north with uh, General John Burgoyne's army coming south from Canada. That goes nowhere fast. Howe really had no intention of supporting that. And Burgoyne, I should add, really had no need in his own mind of needing any support. He thought he would be able to do it all. And so the British are, what, 16, 17, 18 miles away from the, uh, the army at Valley Forge. And they're both staring at each other uh, in, in, a, in a manner of speaking. They're both looking at each other and through the armies, both trying to assert or reassert their government's will. So we talked about George Washington and his concern about food for his troops. Well, how are the British supporting and supplying their troops? Yeah, the, the British Army, <clears throat> after it goes into its winter quarters finally, and there, there had been uh, in December of 1777, one final stare down, if you will, at, uh, at White Marsh. Washington sets up, his sets up his army, this beautiful chain of hills. They dig field fortifications, and he wants Howe to come at him one last time. Washington recalls what happened the last time the British attacked fortifications. Howe remembers it as well. It's called Bunker Hill. British Army marches out. Howe looks at them, thinks, this is not a good idea. <laughs> There's some skirmishing that takes off to the, uh, on the, uh, the British left and the American right. And then the British Army withdraws and returns to Philadelphia. It spends most of its winter in search of food and forage. One of the things that the British had initially believed is that at the beginning of this war that they would be able to sustain themselves off of the population. As it turns out, that didn't happen. Um, people of different political persuasions uh, and, a, and a host of other uh, issues prevent the British from really sustaining themselves off of the bounty of America. So most British supplies were coming over from the mother country as well as depots in Ireland. And that takes a while to get uh, here to Philadelphia, or there to Philadelphia, rather. 
At the same time, though, the British do need firewood. They need hay, and that's coming from the lo from other areas. They're getting hay, in fact, from Rhode Island. They're sending out woodcutting parties regularly, but they're also sending out parties to go out and search for food to feed the army. The British Army's rule of thumb in that day had been to have something like six months of supplies on hand. And I think that the British Army had only ha encountered that happy situation three times throughout the entire eight years of the war in America. So throughout the British occupation of Philadelphia, Howe's redcoats and Hessians and loyalists spend most of their time actually looking for food more uh, rather than seeking combat with the enemy. So as George Washington is planning this uh, grand forage in February, uh, is, is this something where he's just like, go out and get some food, or how extensive is the planning and the organization for this? It's, um, it's Washington, ha and, and this is very much a characteristic of, of the 18th century. Today, uh, our, our, we will drop uh, detailed plans that, that um, will determine the extent of, of, of an operation physically, but also what it's uh, intended to accomplish uh, in, in, in various realms. Washington gives fairly broad orders to, uh, to uh, Nathaniel Green, who is the, the commander selected. Initially, it was, I believe it was supposed to be Anthony Wayne. Wayne's a local boy, knows the people, knows the countryside, but Washington realizes this operation is far too important. I need to give it to a major general rather than a brigadier general, so a two-star over a one-star general. And what he does is, is give uh, Green instructions to scour the countryside between camp and the Delaware River and to, to deny the enemy all the food, forage, and provender, to seize all the cattle, the sheep, and the swine, and to bring them back to camp. This is not only meant to sustain the Continental Army, it's meant to deprive the enemy of his ability to feed his soldiers. So food becomes uh, an element of waging war. By denying the enemy his ability to feed himself, you make war upon the enemy. So uh, initially they would start off in Chester County, and uh, how, how bountiful of of a region was that uh, as they were going you mentioned that the British had also been seeking food oh, yes. was this a competition between the two armies in this region yeah in fact uh, both armies had been competing with one another for for food and forage in the areas and that's one of the great um, what one of the great challenges Green's not supposed to make contact with the British Army he's not there on a combat mission although there is some skirmishing that takes place Green is out there to gather the food and all the other stuff that the army needs for its survival. He enters Chester County. He really didn't have any faith in the operation, but Green's a good soldier. He salutes. This is what the boss wants. We're going to do it as best we can. He'll, he'll lead his uh, column southward from the camp. He's always mindful of the location of the British Army. Ultimately, he, he will make some, some uh, good deal of progress. I haven't been able to discover any account books of what Green gathered, which is unfortunate. But he does write fol uh, following this, or at the close of the operation, he writes to his friend Henry Knox uh, that they had done a pretty good job of gathering uh, cattle, swine, and other supplies for the army. And he's rather proud of what he's able to accomplish, despite his having had doubts uh, about the success of the operation. 
Can you talk a little bit more about Nathaniel Green, who he was? Uh, you mentioned in the book that Washington, one of Washington's skills was selecting subordinates as leaders. Uh, well, what was so important about Green? Well, Green and I, I, I'm sorry to disappoint fans of Hamilton, Green was Washington's right-hand man. And in fact, if you know, Green is, is this amazing character. He's a Quaker. He's supposed to be a pacifist. Well, he has a military bent, so he's something of an apostate Quaker. He's self-taught. And in fact, he's, uh, I, I believe I make a comment that he's an autodidact with a vengeance. And you see some of his letters and he goes on into history and he talks about economics and currency and so much more in his letters. So Green shows himself to be a thoughtful commander, somebody with a serious appreciation for strategy and uh, the, higher, the higher arts of war. Interestingly, uh, to fast forward, when he goes into the Southern campaign, Green never wins a battle, but he wins a campaign. And so he's able to win the bigger objectives, even though he never actually wins any battles. So, but uh, Washington relies upon Green. He trusts him. And this is, this is the man that Washington, were he to fall, Green is the one who should replace him in any, in any case uh, that uh, that the army should need this happening. He's um, also got an, a background in business. His family had uh, was in the iron business, uh, ships, chains, anchors, and so on. So he understood business. And in fact, Washington will later tab him to become quartermaster general. And this is something that Green does not want. He writes, "Who's basically, who's ever heard of a quartermaster general in history? I want a field command. But again, he's a good soldier. He salutes and does as His Excellency wishes. Later on, once the debacle at Camden takes place and Horatio Gates, the great hero of Saratoga, um, is disgraced, Green gets his chance at an independent field command. So he's the guy that Washington relies upon to execute, to oversee this most important uh, operation. So as the Continental Army moves into Chester County, how, how are they received by the residents? You know, it's um, most people really don't want to see any army. There, many of them would be um, what both armies would term the disaffected. And, the, in their, and it really that means people that just want to be left alone. They don't want to have to deal with the armies. They don't want, they're, they're afraid of the violence. They want to keep their property safe so that they can take care of themselves and their families. This is a time of war and so they're all, they're concerned about this. Green, as he uh, goes, his, as he's mar marching his column southward, at one point his soldiers uh, capture a couple of farmers trying to bring supplies into uh, British lines and shows himself a tough customer. Green has these men basically stripped to the waist, the wrists secured, and each man gets a hundred lashes. He wants to show that he's serious about what he's doing and he wants to make sure that he sends a message thou shalt not supply the British. At another point, Green gets tired of people sequestering their goods, hiding them from him. So rather than giving out any uh, receipts uh, in, in, so that they can get some compensation, even though it's in nearly worthless continental dollars, Green instead has his men seize the goods that they have to search for. He's tired of playing around with it. He's tired of p having to uh, 
uh, play this cat and mouse game, game, if you will, with supplies. He writes back to Washington, I hear their cries and like Pharaoh, I harden my heart. Now, once you secure the supplies, you have to transport them back to Valley Forge. Uh, how extensive was the road system at this time? Uh, the road system pretty primitive, and uh, you know some some of the roads that that are in, that are in existence today, built upon the 18th century traces, but um, fairly narrow, basically dirt roads. And this is one of the problems with with the winter, or indeed any winter, when you've got large bodies of troops marching over, or wagons going over these roads. If they're muddy, it churns up the mud, and then if it freezes, it creates these spikes that are, you know, capable of twisting soldiers' ankles, breaking the suspension systems of wagons. So the the road network is, is a pretty primitive one, and that's that's a piece of it. Moreover, Green's got to try and find wagons and horses to haul these things back to camp. So uh, you mentioned earlier Anthony Wayne was, was kind of a local person oh, who yeah. was also part of this. He would eventually get orders to cross over the Delaware River. At what what uh, proposed that? Well, initially, Green had, uh, had considered uh, sending Colonel Richard Butler of Carlisle, uh, where, where I uh, am living and working, sending him across the river. Green, I think, realizes this is rather important. Butler's good. I need to send a brigadier general, and it's Wayne that he that he chooses. Wayne's a thoroughly capable commander. He's an aggressive, and despite his nickname, Mad Anthony, he's actually pretty thoughtful. He's uh, as I, as I noted, he's aggressive. He's a competent combat commander. He also exercises uh, the sort of thought that you generally want in a commander in an engagement. So he selects Green, who will march down to Wilmington with maybe. Oh, 300, 400 soldiers, not many. I mean, th there had only been about 1,200 to 1,400 in the initial column. He'll march to Wilmington, and as luck would have it, makes contact with John Barry of the Continental Navy. And uh, Captain Barry and General Wayne, they seem to be cut from the same cloth. They're both, ag they're both aggressive commanders. They um, enjoy independent command. And Wayne talks to Barry and asks, hey, would you mind ferrying my men across the river uh, down over towards Salem, New Jersey? And what, when I do this, I'd like you to set fire to the marsh hay to distract the Royal Navy, because the Royal Navy has a tremendous amount of firepower on that river. It's also got incredible mobility because of its galleys and uh, more shallow draft vessels. So Wayne and Barry, they're of a like mind. Barry. Wow, you want me to burn things? I'm more than happy to. <laughs> he's, I, I think he's a 14-year-old boy at heart. You know, give him a box of matches, ask him to set fire, and he's going to have a good time. But um, he'll, he'll be the one who walk, crosses over into New Jersey and starts to work in New Jersey to gather more supplies, more cattle, more swine, more sheep for the Army. How did Wayne get along with the New Jersey militia? Wayne worked remarkably well with uh, Colonel, later Brigadier General Ellis of the New Jersey Militia. In fact, um, Ellis and Wayne form a, a really good working relationship. Wayne is also able to get some very good intelligence from local militia officers as to who has what supplies in his locales. And in fact, uh, one of the, uh, for me, one of the more touching uh, discoveries was at the Connecticut Historical Society coming across two small notes in faded pencil from Anthony Wayne to a captain, uh, Theodore, I believe, Woodruff of the 7th Connecticut, directing him to visit. And he gives a list of local men 
with what property they have, cattle, horses, and what have you, to go out and get that stuff and bring it in for the Army. So that's a, that really speaks, I think, volumes as to the quality of the intelligence network, but also the quality of the relationship that Wayne had with the New Jersey militia. Now, another officer that he would work with in New Jersey was Casimir Pulaski. Who was oh. he? Oh, am I allowed to say Pulaski was something of the problem child of the Continental Army? Um, I won't call him a chucklehead. He was a chucklehead at times. Pulaski's a, 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 an incredibly gifted but impetuous officer. He tends to see things through a European lens, which is normal. He's a European officer. Wayne calls upon him to help him uh, as he's up in Haddonfield. And Pulaski has real problems with this. He writes to Washington saying, basically, I'm an officer of the cavalry. There's no way that I should be taking orders from an officer of the infantry. They're mere plotters in the mud. You know, I'm, I'm far more elevated, not just because I'm on a horse. Washington basically politely but firmly reads the riot act to Pulaski. We don't respect seniority of branch. We respect date of rank. Anthony Wayne's got date of rank. Now, please, shut up in color. <laughs> and so Pulaski, even though he doesn't want to, does obey, and he works with Wayne. He is, as I noted, impetuous, uh, and in fact, um, in one, uh, in, at one place, as Wayne, uh, at, at Haddonfield, Pulaski charges, and it causes the British, fortunately for Wayne, basically to drop their supplies and start falling back toward Cooper's Ferry, modern-day Camden. Now he's lucky at that time. As Wayne advances, wants to see what the enemy's up to, develop the situation, he sends out a, a line of skirmishers of infantry to move forward to assess things. Pulaski instead decides, now's the time to charge yet again. And as this happens, the British start shouting at him. In fact, there's an account by John Graves Simcoe, who I'm sorry was not a homicidal maniac, as uh, the series Turn portrays. Um, according to, to uh, Simcoe, a sergeant of the Queen's American Rangers shouted at him, telling him to, to go away, go away, or else I'm going to shoot you. Pulaski's English is very poor, plus he probably can't hear this. And the sergeant shoots at Pulaski, kills his horse. Pulaski's mighty miffed. Somebody shot at me and killed my horse. But there's, a, there's skirmishing that occurs, and this is largely because Pulaski does not play well with others. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Uh, Wayne's troops are on the other side of the Delaware River from Valley Forge. What are some of the risks of having his uh, unit without being able to return to Valley Forge very quickly? Oh, my gosh. This, rep this represents a, an, a real opportunity for, uh, for the British Army. William Howe was aware of uh, Green's foraging column earlier, but did nothing. Once Wayne crosses the Delaware River, that's when, according to uh, one of Howe's Hessian aides-de-camp, aides we're going to have a slap at Mr. Wayne. Howe will send out the elite of the British Army, the Light Infantry Brigade. They get rowed in, uh, in Royal Navy galleys down to uh, Salem, where they land. 
and they start to advance very aggressively upon Wayne. In fact, Wayne, who's at Raccoon Creek, a Swede's church, just escapes uh, in the nick of time ahead of the British Army, and he moves northward. At the same time, the British Army ferries uh, another brigade, uh, two battalions of the 42nd Foot, better known as the Black Watch, the Royal Highland Regiment, as well as the Queen's American Rangers to Cooper's Ferry. Wayne is, in effect, sandwiched between two superior forces. He's outnumbered by something like eight to one. The British, though, rather than going after Wayne, start foraging. So they've established a pattern. And so rather than seeking combat, they seek food, they seek the needs to sustain their army. And this really enables Wayne to get to escape and to march past them. Um, and with his own cattle and sheep and whatever else he's been able to scour from the countryside. Now, the third component of this grand forage was to the south, into Delaware and Maryland, and that was led by Captain Henry Lee. Uh, why, why the, the other leaders were generals, he was a captain. Why did Washington entrust him with this responsibility? Henry Lee, whom we later know as Light Horse Harry Lee, <clears throat> commands, a fifth, commands Fifth Troop, First Continental Light Dragoons. And Lee, in my estimation, is probably the finest light cavalry officer, or one of the finest light cavalry officers of that war. Washington's known Lee since he was a young man. He's still a young man. He's only in his 20s. But Washington knows his family. They're both from the tidewater of Virginia. He's been able to assess Lee's intellect and character from before the war. Lee is also educated. He uh, attended uh, the College of New Jersey, today Princeton University. Lee had also distinguished himself before this um, in manning an outpost south of the encampment. And in fact, um, in January, Washington writes to him and salutes him as my dear Lee, congratulating him on this defensive action that he had, that he had fought at Scott's Farm. And Lee is, shows himself to be an incredibly capable young man. So Washington trusts him to do the sort of stuff that light cavalry officers had been doing in Europe for years. Uh, talk more about that. You, you sure. often refer to, you say that he was a successful practitioner of petit guerre, and uh, that he was, you often refer to him as a partisan warfare, uh, doing partisan warfare. Talk a little bit more about what that means. Sure, sure. By, uh, by petit guerre or small war or partisan warfare, what it means is officers or, or soldiers who are, are, were able to do many of the things that uh, irregular forces might do. So ambushes, going out for rec uh, uh, reconnoitering the enemy, seeking out soft spots to attack or to destroy. And that's stuff that we often associate with the militia, but it's actually the kind of thing that's best done by regular troops, by the Continental Army. And Lee ha is particularly adept at this. He's a really careful observer of his situation. He's a careful observer of those around him, and he sends back these wonderful letters to Washington telling him about the people that he, that he has noted, talking to Washington about the nature of the cattle, the temper of the people. You know, he notes that there, there are quite a few disaffected, also numbers of deserters from both armies who are living away from the main settlements. And so, Lee is, is, 
really has a keen eye for, for all of this stuff. He's very good at autonomous command. He's good at being out on his own. And he really seems to thrive in this environment. Now, another figure that's part of Lee's story is Captain Alan McLean. Who is yes. he? Alan McLean commands a company of what remains of the Delaware line. You know, Delaware, a small state, not too terribly many uh, men. But Delaware contributes one of the, uh, the better regiments of the Continental Army, along with Maryland. Uh, the Maryland line was, was noted for its, uh, it, its ability in combat. But um, McLean works quite well with Lee, with Lee. And in fact, after the foraging, when Lee gets uh, his own uh, second partisan legion, as it's called, better known as Lee's Legion, and he's promoted to major and later lieutenant colonel, McLean's company will become the dismounted troop of Lee's outfit, which is both cavalry and light infantry. But McLean is one of these guys who really excels in independent command. He's mature, he's thoughtful, but also aggressive. Not stupidly aggressive, but thoughtfully so. He knows when and where to strike. He seeks out information. He communicates very well with his superiors. So he's really one of those ideal company-grade officers that every senior officer treasures. Now, earlier you had mentioned that the British had landed at Head of Elk in Maryland uh, at the beginning of the Philadelphia campaign, uh, but that was a major logistics hub for, for the Continental Army. Uh, how significant was that in the system that, that existed in that area? Sure, sure. Head of Elk is, was actually one of the magazines, as, as, as the term was in the day, and it contains incredible stocks of, uh, of pork, of fish, of grain, of beer, of rum, and probably a few things that I can't recall right now. <laughs> but as the British landed uh, just south of Head of Elk, really, Washington gives orders get everything out. We don't want the British to be able to live off of this. Well, they're able to get quite a bit of uh, the, the supplies out of there and disperse them to farms and uh, warehouses nearby, but not everything. The British were able to sustain themselves off of uh, the flour and the grain that was left there. The British also destroyed some of the supplies that were there. But Elk, because of its location, really was an important place. It's an important transit point between the, Ches the Chesapeake Bay, the Delaware River. It's along the roads as well, and so it really is a key place. There's also a, a shallow, ship, shallow draft shipbuilding that goes on there, so it really is a vital hub in the Continental Army's commissariat system, in its supply system. In this, early st in, the, in this stage of the war, it also becomes a key hub in later stages for sh the shipment of goods further south as the seat of war moves south. So as Lee's men were securing provisions in, on the Delmarva Peninsula, were, were they going directly back to Valley Forge or were they going to Head of Elk and some other places? It depends. They're, they're, many of them are, are, were going back to Head of Elk. Others were going to Middletown uh, in Delaware. And uh, what I, I was able to uh, discover was a, at, in the Gloucester County Historical Society in New Jersey was um, an, the account book for Lee's uh, troop of light dragoons telling me everyone he visited, but also the property that he was able to impress, uh, you name it, just a really wonderful find. And so Lee is sending these out to different uh, locations. The wagons are put together under a wagon master, so these wagon trains literally moving to these various locations. Washington's also looking at different places or having his subordinates look at different locations 
to establish um, intermediate supply points where they can gather and concentrate supplies before moving on to Valley Forge. Places that are just out of reach of the British Army, but that are close enough to support the Army. Now, you do mention in the book uh, that uh, many of these wagons were driven by enslaved people, and yes. you mentioned some of the names that were recorded of, of those people. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about that role? Sure, sure. And, if, uh, and I, coming across those names, uh, men like Negro Joseph, Negro Cuff, Negro Sam, those are the names that were recorded in the account book, really spoke to me about the complexity of our American War for Independence. These are the enslaved, or were the enslaved, the unfree, serving the cause of white political independence. And so it adds some real complexity and maybe some discomfort in a story that is, I think, too often turned into a glorious struggle. And so it speaks to the nature of the human experience and the American experience and that there are so many facets to the, the story of the United States. Now, another aspect of this is uh, the use of the army and the militia to enforce revolutionary control over certain populations. You talked about the disaffected and mm -hmm. people who were deserters and there were loyalists at the same time. But in many ways, this war is a competition for who gets to control the population and uh, you know, certain territories. So how, how was the Continental Army and, and local militias used to enforce revolutionary control? Sure. The um, Washington understood, and I believe at an early stage, that this war was a struggle for people's affections, for people's loyalties. Ideally, you want people to like you and to support you, people who will send their sons, their f husbands, their fathers into the army to serve, people who will supply you, people who will give you information, if you can't get that, at least get indifference. People that don't hate you. At the, at the bottom of the scale, those are the people who are working against you and working for your enemy. And so Washington understands <clears throat> that he needs to avoid alienating people. And in, much of that is due, or much of that rather, relies upon the conduct of his soldiers. This is part of his respect for private property. The militia serves as something of a police force, and so that enforces the political order. It helps tamp down on loyalists. It keeps the loyalists afraid. It makes sure that the, um, the Continental Army will get the information and the supplies it needs and a host of other functions. At times, it will serve in the field with the Continental Army, uh, the, each militia has varying qualities of capabilities in combat, but they're, they're a vital adjunct uh, to what the Army does. And in fact, while the Army is in an area, they in turn serve as the representation of the Continental Congress's authority. They also bolstered the authority of Pennsylvania's government. And so we see that the Army then certainly functioned as an adjunct to the government. In fact, armies are always have been idea, uh, really the an expression of the political will of their governments. Now we talked a little bit about John Barry, and you mentioned that he was kind of maybe a, a soul, a soul, uh, somebody really connected to Anthony Wayne. Mm -hmm. uh, and 
Uh, talk a little bit about his aspect. You kind of compare him to Lee in terms of his uh, liking partisan warfare, but partisan warfare on the rivers. How does that work for him? Well, Barry had, Barry had previously commanded a frigate, but with the Royal Navy occupying the Delaware River, his frigate's no match for what the Royal Navy's got in terms of firepower or the size of, of what it offers. So he uh, scuttles it, uh, puts it underwater, and keep it out of British hands. What's he got now? Basically whale boats, large rowboats that, he, that, he's, on, that he's working on the river. And so what, what Barry has been doing throughout this, uh, this operation before, during, and after is attacking British supply ships coming up the river. What he wants to do is to make life as miserable as possible for the British. He's going after the lightly armed or unarmed merchants, merchantmen and transports coming up the river. His men board them, they'll seize what goods they can, take all the good stuff, and then destroy the ships. Often the, the Royal Navy will catch, catch uh, uh, wind of this or they'll see it, send a response. Barry's men have to work all the faster. Part of his um, riverine partisan warfare, if you will, it, it includes uh, burning the marsh hay, and that's meant to distract the British from what uh, Anthony Wayne was doing in New Jersey. So you mentioned at the beginning of your book that uh, this emerged as you were doing work as a historian on the staff ride team at the U.S. Army Combat Studies Institute. What's a staff ride? <clears throat> a staff ride is the focus study of a battle or a campaign that ideally takes place on the ground where it, where it happened. And so what you do is use the ground and the surrounding area as your classroom, but it's also a primary document that you interrogate. So it's like this letter that, you, that you've just gotten a hold of in the archives, but instead of having a paper and ink, what you've got is the terrain. And you know that it's been affected by erosion and man, but you can suss out some of the details of it. And so what you're doing on a staff ride is any number of things, teaching about leadership, about decision-making, about the appreciation of terrain and its effects on military operations. It's also a great way to build, to, to build a team. People get away from the flagpole, they're more relaxed, and it becomes a little more, what, um, more open discussion, and so it really can be an important piece of teaching uh, soldiers and civilians. I've done, them, done staff rides for, for all sorts of folks teaching them about leadership, teaching them about uh, appreciating decision-making and so much more. So when you, when you uh, run, when you do a staff ride about the Grand Forage, mm -hmm. it's not a battle, it, it doesn't involve very dramatic combat operations the way, say, the Battle of Gettysburg does. What, what is it that you hope your officers on the staff rides are taking away from this? Sure, now, and the, this, this was part of a much larger staff ride that I built on the Philadelphia campaign. Uh, and it, it proceeds from landing at the head of Elk all the way through Valley Forge. And you could take it beyond if you wanted to the Battle of Monmouth in 1778. But what um, I want in, in this, and um, I'm hoping that my students will come away with an appreciation for the threads of continuity. The things that my students have been doing throughout their 20 years of, of military service resemble in many ways 
what George Washington's Continentals were doing throughout those eight years of war. My students had deployed to their combat outposts or their forward operating bases. Washington's Continentals are at FOB Valley Forge, and that's the way that I want them to think about it and to understand it, and that these guys over two centuries ago were doing many of the same things that my students were doing when they were deployed overseas. And so to understand that there's not a lot new, at least in terms of military activity under the sun, and that there's a lot to be gained from what past actors did. In a sense, history becomes something of a uh, laboratory for their understanding past actions and for their own development as leaders, as professionals. Now, in looking back at, at this, uh, the Grand Forage, you mentioned that it, that it was in the strategic realm that George Washington showed his real medal. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, Washington, as a, let, let me talk a little bit about Washington, the tactician. Washington it was enamored with complex plans. We'll send a column here, a column there, another one there. And that often gets him in trouble, as it, as it did at Germantown in October of 1777. He often doesn't, he often failed, rather, to see the battlefield in its fullest extent. And so he was flanked at Brandywine, much as he had been flanked at Long Island in 1776. And so William Howe was a fine tactician, his opponent. Washington, though, understood at a much higher level, far better than did Howe, the importance of the army, the importance of what it was that he was trying to accomplish, and how the army worked to attain American political independence from Great Britain. Does he have some fixations? Yes, New York is his primary fixation. But in 1781, the French were able to lure him and get him to uh, accept, we need to march on Yorktown, and he does that. And it's the last major campaign in, in uh, North America during this war. So Washington really does grasp um, the much larger aspects. He even gra he grasps the significance of getting the French Navy involved because he realizes that this can help deny the British their control of the sea lanes, that this will force the British to stretch themselves thin. The British will now have to contend with a traditional enemy, and the British have no friends in Europe. So Washington gets all of this and more, and he, he, he develops, I think, into rather a fine strategist. Not without fault, but I think one of the finest strategists of the war. So how successful was the Grand Forage in providing supplies for the Continental Army as they moved from February into spring? I wish that I had everybody's account book. <laughs> but uh, looking at the records, looking at the letters, they all suggest that this enabled the Continental Army to make it through into early spring, the time that cattle could start coming down from New England, that they'd be able to get salt to preserve the meat, and so much more. So it's an important bridging operation, if you will, in terms of getting the Army the food that it needed to make it through this fatal crisis of 1778 until more supplies could come in. Still, the commissariat and the quartermaster general's department would stagger forward and continue to stumble throughout the war. It's an issue that was never solved. 
Now, we've talked about some of the key leaders of the Grand Forage. Uh, did, when you were researching this, did, did you discover things in, in the Grand Forage that taught you something about them that you didn't know from some of their battle histories? You know, it, um, it, in, in many ways, it, it helps humanize uh, these figures. You know, Washington, for one, he's, he was altogether way too successful in creating this image of, of this marble man. And he's difficult to come to know because he, he was so guarded in showing his feelings, his emotions, or his expressions. Although he did occasionally lose his temper. Um, according to one uh, observer at the Battle of Monmouth in, in 1778, he swore till the leaves shook. But um, Washington shows something of his political astuteness, his grasp of strategy. Nathaniel Green, much the same. He reveals much of himself through his letters. And so it, it, it's a way of getting to know these characters uh, more, uh, how should I say, perhaps personally. That account book that I was mentioning to you, or those two notes from Anthony Wayne to this captain of the 7th Connecticut, that enabled me to bring forward, if you will, these people who may have been unknown to everyone except their own relatives. And so this allows me to humanize the story, certainly for myself and I hope for the readers. So uh, we talked about some of the, uh, the Continental officers. On the other side was William Howe. Uh, you'd mentioned the, a certain reluctance to really engage with the Continentals. You, you use the term, you say, sloth ruled. Uh, what happens to him? Does this lack of action on his part actually have an effect on his career? Well, Howe, even before this, Howe saw, I believe, the futility of this war. This, is a people, this was a people's war, and Howe recognized that Britain did not have the ability to gain all the people's affections. Moreover, he realized that he was unable to bring Washington to decisive battle. He, under, he believed that if he could destroy the Continental Army, he could, therefore, get people to realize that the struggle really wasn't worth it. But um, he has, he's basically given up he doesn't believe that he can win this war, and he's, ask, he's asking for relief uh, throughout the entirety of this. And I should add, and perhaps this speaks a little bit better for Howe, he also recognized that his most precious commodity was the British soldier. Most of the British army was deployed in North America. It's not a terribly large army to begin with. He realizes that he's got to husband the strength of the British Army. He can't waste it in um, fruitless battles that just cause soldiers to lose their lives. And so he's got to be very cautious about when and where he seeks battle. And so all of these elements, his own personality, the needs of his soldiers, and so much more drive him. But yes, I'd say that much of his uh, performance was slothful. So the, the Continental Army survives the winter at Valley Forge. They get through the Grand Forage. Spring comes. What, what is their next step? Well, it, in, during the spring, Washington uh, sees, sees recruits come in. The Army starts to rebuild its strength. By, in um, in the, the spring, Howe had been relieved, finally. He was very happy to leave America. General Sir Henry Clinton replaced him. And Clinton gets news 
The French have entered the war. You're now going to lose a large chunk of your army to protect our West Indian sugar islands. Clinton, not too happy. He decides uh, it, we're going to have to evacuate Philadelphia. We're marching back to New York, which is our base of operations. But Clinton still wanted one last battle. He wanted to come to grips with Washington. Marches northward toward New York. Washington leaves camp and he trails. He's looking for an opportunity to get, come to grips with Clinton. Both of them get it at Monmouth Courthouse. Both sides can claim victory. Uh, Clinton's able to get to New York. He saves his trains. His army marches back. He does lose quite a few soldiers in the combat, but also due to heat stroke. Washington's able to claim victory. The army performed well, plus it held the battlefield, which was one of the signifiers of a victory in the 18th century. So this war has now changed with French entry into, the, into it. It's now become a European war, and Britain was forced to spread its uh, soldiers and its sailors thinly across the globe. We've been speaking with Ricardo Herrera. He is the author of Feeding Washington's Army, Surviving the Valley Forge Winter in 1778. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.